The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Endometrial Cancer Care in the Age of Immunotherapy, translating clinical evidence into meaningful improvements in patient outcomes across the disease continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UDV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Endometrial Cancer Care in the Age of Immunotherapy, translating clinical evidence into meaningful improvements in patients' outcomes across the disease continuum. I really want to welcome to the stage with myself, uh, David O'Malley from The Ohio State University, where I lead the Division of Gynecological Oncology. Um, two of my great friends in GYN Oncology, and I'm really honored to share the stage with you each today. Anna, can I introduce yourself? Yeah, hello, thank you, David, for having me tonight. Good evening, all, thank you for joining us. My name is Sana Wagner. I'm a medical oncologist by training, and I'm heading the gynae program at Valdebron Institute of Oncology in Barcelona, Spain. I'm very excited to share this night with all my colleagues. Maddie. Yeah, I'm uh, Matt Powell. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Seitman Cancer Center, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. I lead the division there, and I also for the NRG chair of the Uterine Corpus Committee, and so excited for all these advancements in endometrial cancer, and obviously seeing this crowd tonight, you are as well. So thank you. So what are we going to do today? Let's, let's add to our knowledge of, of where we are. Share, share what we've gained here just in the last month or so with regards to the new data and really talk about how that fits into the paradigm of endometrial cancer and really look to equip or add to our skills in, in, in creating how this is going to impact our patients and how are we going to work together to mitigate it, uh, and manage adverse events, which will be a really a reoccurring theme today. So I'm going to talk about really the integrating that molecular testing and how we're going to do this, more, more of just a primer, okay? And as we look at this, this is some of the challenges uh, that we're going to face as practitioners. And I really love sharing the stage for Anna in a European perspective, we'll talk about that. But let's first step and talk about uterine cancer. We continue to see increasing incidence of uterine cancer. You, we talk about ovarian cancer, how it's de how the incidence going down, but prevalence going hot longer because people are living longer. We're not seeing that in uterine cancer. We'll talk about that in a second. Postmenopausal is the average age of diagnosis at 63, and overall we do pretty well with five-year disease survival. Obviously, the we we the earlier we diagnose patients, the better their survival, and you see that on the bottom right. If we diagnose them in localized early stage, their five-year survival is about 95%. Regional meaning lymph node metastases, we still hit 70%. Imagine that, metastatic disease to the lymph nodes where we still see a 70% five-year survival. Unfortunately, don't do very well in our distant. This disease really calls out the disparities that we're seeing, and amazingly, when I started this uh, field about 20 some years ago, some years ago, um, we, we, ovarian cancer was a death sentence. And we, if someone's diagnosed, said, we'll give you a couple years and we'll do the best we can. Amazingly, on our current trajectories, the death rate from uterine cancer is approaching that of ovarian cancer. And it's disparately seen in our black patients. And this is much of the work 
all of us on this stage are doing and throughout the country with our peers, trying to identify why our non-white patients are so adversely impacted. And I wish I had the answers, I don't. We're gonna continue, I promise you, every day to work to answer those questions. So this is really a molecular disease. We used to lump everybody, you know, Matt remarks in the NRG meetings, and they're all lumpers, everybody's the same. You're uterine cancer, that's so far from the truth. We talk about, from the, uh, 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 when we talk about the Cancer Genome Atlas research, it really differentiated and showed that we had four distinct molecular subtypes. I've updated this slide to really bring into the most common nomenclature. You hear us talk about poly or hyper ultramutated on the far left sides, really mutated tumors which are recognized by the body's immune system. Then we have these DMMR, mismatch repair deficient or MSI high tumors. We use those terms interchangeably. You see here again the molecular signature. On the left there, we call those the hot tumors. Those are the ones that are gonna respond best to immune therapy, but we see that uh, we've made some great strides in those on the right. You hear us say uh, uh, mutated low or low mutated tumors, but really usually what we refer to as NSMP, which is non-specific molecular profile, or microsatellite stable, okay, or MMR proficient, or P53 wild type. But we will mostly refer to those as, as uh, microsatellite stable or non-SMP during this talk. And the far right, those are bad behaviors. These are the P53 abnormal. Copy number high, we don't really use that term very much. We do on this slide, and we all have this slide, or are somewhat close to this slide. But really the P53 mutated, and you see that schematically on the bottom. And why do we care about this? Look at the performance in the upper left of the TCGA uh, in the performance of these different subgroups. On the right is Portec 2, which looked at vaginal cup brachytherapy versus whole pelvic radiation in an intermediate risk factor early stage disease. Portec 3 on the bottom was actually looked at the recurrence-free survival on the left and overall survival on the right, looked at chemotherapy plus radiation versus radiation alone. Look how well the poly mutated. These tumors are recognized by the body's immune system and kept at bay. But very close are our NSMP or our DMMR. But as we look at these bad behaviors on the low red lines, on each one of those curves are P53 abnormal tumors. And you see the impact, again, these, this is a slide where we've lumped in all the interventions, and we're gonna talk about a little bit, a little bit about how those impact. For those who, who treat beyond endometrial cancer, you know, when we talk about Lynch syndrome, everybody thinks colorectal. But when we're looking at MMR deficient, the incidence and deficiency, it's actually highest endometrial cancer, and you can argue in women, even in Lynch syndrome, they're diagnosed at a higher rate. When we look at the breakdown of proficient versus deficient patients, about a quarter versus three quarters that you see there. So about a quarter are DMMR, about three quarters are proficient patients. Now, this was adopted by the NCCN, from the NCCN. And this is really what we are looking to diagnose the molecular subtype of these patients. So what's the first thing we should do? And Anna does this at our institution, but I don't. I'm going to come back to that. 
pulley sequencing, trying to identify the hot spots on the tumor, which will identify those patients who are going to do the best. If we don't see a pulley mutation, then we say, do they have MMR? If you have loss on IHC or MSI testing, then you have a deficient tumor. If your expression's retained, you then look at the P53 immunohistochemistry. And there is where we have those NSMP, nonspecific molecular profile, or those that are high. And clearly those that are abnormal, I don't mean high, excuse me, I misspoke. Those that are abnormal are the worst behaviors, and we see similar uh, 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 opportunities in those groups. So how do we test for MMR? Really it's IHC, and across most of our institutions, even if you're in the earliest stages, uh, we get MMR proteins. Can you also do the MSI uh, testing, uh, looking at uh, microsatellites? Yes, but most of us stick with the MMR, and maybe we should look at MSI testing to identify that small group of patients that aren't picked up on MMR. And how does this look when we're looking at predicting response to immune therapy, which we're obviously going to concentrate on with the two recent positive phase three trials? TMB and PDL1 expression, PDL1 expression doesn't seem to predict very well in endometrial cancer, the responsiveness. TMB, we have, we have an agnostic indication in TMB. Maybe we should check it. But obviously, MSI, you see here with the overlapping diagrams, PDL1, again, a non predictor. MSI and TMB, most of those should be the same, though there may be a small group, 5%, that aren't picked up on the mismatch repair proficiency. And maybe for 5% opportunity and decision making about our treatment, that we should be testing this. And we have to look in the mirror about the opportunities here from a molecular standing. What are the other challenges? Well, the other challenges are, how do we do all of this? And the reason we're doing all of this is to identify those patients most, most uh, uh, apt to respond to immune therapy. I don't think I need to tell this audience the importance and how well immune therapy works, particularly in those deficient patients, or MSI, high. But we know that removing those blockade, allowing, allowing the body's own immune system to kill the cancer cells is much higher when we have a deficient patient. But it's not just all about MMR. We have other biomarkers are really seen to predict treatment, other treatment interventions. We have the uh, development of antibody drug conjugates versus HER2-new. We have trastuzumab that's been studied, and uh, I think, Matt, you're going to talk about that a little bit, with regards to the utilization in our patients in those, in those P53 wild-type or serous cancers. And we see at least 25 to 30% of our serous cancers, and you could probably say P53 mutated tumors, that are going to have high expression or two to three plus expression. Now, this is all being redefined on how we redefine our testing. Typically, or historically, I should say, I shouldn't say typically, historically, we've tested HER2-new in uterine cancer using the breast cancer diagnosis, breast cancer criteria, excuse me. But we're finding out lower expression, so every patient I see that I have negative HER2-new, 
I need to go back, because I write it right in my problem list, right at the assessment plan. I have to go back and say, what, what did I mean by negative? Was it two plus with negative fish? Was it one plus? Because we know there may be an opportunity to participate in clinical trials, even if they're one plus with their IHC. But it's important for us to continue to look not just at the subtype in the next generation sequencing, but also some of the IHC tests that we can identify. I put this slide together after a conversation with Anna at our last discussion. And she'll tell you in a second about what she does. But in the US, there's great different regional differentiation, really across the world, but it will talk about the US, great regional differentiation about how we're molecularly staging our uterine cancer. And that's about to change because the molecular, the staging is about to change in uterine cancers. So I put this slide together and say, what's the minimum we need? Okay. And I actually sat down with my pathologist because this is where we're going to start doing an OSU. And I, I left the last meeting. I was embarrassed. Anna. I was embarrassed that we can't keep up with our European colleagues on our testing. And I said, what, what, what do we need to do here, Adrian, Dr. Suarez, my pathologist? And he said, okay. So we came up with a list of that we should be this is not, this is, this is opinion of the minimum aspect here, okay? All patients that have MMRIHC, without debate, without debate. At least P53 and ER in grade two or higher endometrioid. At least that in grade two, and you could argue all patients, and we'll talk about that. P53 and ER is just what I was saying, in grade one, particularly if they have deep invasion and or extensive lymphascular spatial invasion. HER2 in all serous cancers, and I would argue P53 mutated, I probably should have added carcinosarcoma there, and I'll talk about that in a second. Poly patients in, in patients with grade two or histological features suggestive of poly mutations. I get my reports from my pathologist, and they say, you know, I'm worried this patient has a pulley. I make sure I send it. And really, what we should be doing is sending these results as soon as we get the biopsy so that we have their molecular signature by the time we do the hysterectomy, ideally. So that's not under minimum. That's a new bullet. I should have spaced that a little bit differently. But what's optimal? All right, Poli, plus or minus, next generation sequence. She'll so talk a little bit what she does. ERP 53, HER2 new, all tumors, MMR, that's without debate, right? That's the optimal. Okay, where could we maybe cut some corners? Maybe cut some corners here. Well, in a grade 1A, minimal invasion, no lymphascular space, do I really need PIG 53? Do I really need Poli? Do I really need ER? Probably not. Those patients are cured, right? Serious cancers, they're all P53 mutated. Very few of them are ER positive and very few are pulley, okay? Carcinosarcoma, you can make the same argument. Clear cell, interesting, because you have low grade and high grade. So, so do we need 53 and clear cell? Because a histologic diagnosis, it is a different tumor. I think we should pull clear cell completely out. Matt, can you take care of that energy? Yeah, next week. Yeah. Okay, take that completely <laughs> out. Probably say the same about D-differentiated and differentiated. Those are different tumors. I don't know, but they're nasty. So I actually think that I, I should do all the testing I can on those because I need to identify potential biomarkers. So all of this, the why are we talking about this? Because just this past month, actually now two months ago, the world changed. 
and now category one for IO therapy in the first line. We still have consideration trastuzumab, a trade name for that is Herceptin, trastuzumab, in the upfront setting. We also have the continued utilization of our immune therapy in the recurrent setting, particularly Lempem, uh, uh, Distarlimab, and Pembro, all of those, both in an agnostic indication or proficient. We'll talk more about that. Maddie, let's go through yours, then we'll do some cases. Does that sound like it a plan? Sounds perfect. That, right. It sounds perfect. And what a great introduction to this. I think really understanding the molecular aspects of this is key to putting all these trials and the subgroups into context. And we'll be talking about maximizing the benefit of immune checkpoint inhibitor regimens in the frontline setting. I actually get the easy part. I think Anna's gonna have the tricky part, what to do <laughs> later. The, um, and these are our big things coming up and uh, that have uh, data that we'll be sharing with you today, uh, snapshots of our phase three immunotherapy trials. And, and it is just an amazing time. I think when the first 15 years of our practice maybe one trial would be running in endometrial cancer, and it's, it's such a difference. And, and I've had the opportunity to be participating in the top two studies with uh, Ruby and, and GYO18, and both of them are our standard cytotoxic backbone with carboplatin paclitaxel, plus minus a uh, immunotherapy agent, plus a little sprinkling in of PARP inhibitors, and we'll be talking about that. Duo-E, uh, you just heard Duo-O at uh, ASCO here recently. Now, Duo-E is different. It's for endometrial cancer, but similar strategy, having indravalumab plus minus laparib maintenance for patients uh, uh, with endometrial cancer. Attend, uh, the first, the, so Duo-E's had a press release, uh, so we know there's a, a signal there. Attend uh, is similar with the different agents, as shown there with the tazolizumab. We have Keynote C93, which is actually looking at getting rid of chemotherapy and just using the checkpoint inhibitor in our defective mismatch repair population. Dominica, the same, only with distarlamab. Then we have a, a, another study that really could alter the landscape, and that's a non-chemo regimen, levatinib pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy with carboplatin paclitaxel. So figuring all this out, what, you know, a year from now when we come to give this talk, uh, we'll, we'll talk about how we can sequence all this, what we can learn. So what about combinations? What, what are we trying to do here? And we know single agent activity we have with checkpoint inhibitors about 50% of the time, the tumor will respond if it's defective mismatch repair, only about 10% of the time if it's a proficient tumor with single agent checkpoint. How do we do better than that? So combination therapy, especially if you're gonna add it to chemotherapy, again, killing the cell, hopefully is creating neoantigens, hopefully helping our immune system see the cancer and uh, better an antigen presenting, probably an effect on the tumor microenvironment that's important. So we think this strategy of immunotherapy uh, plus chemotherapy is a, vi a, a valid strategy and, and we'll show you that it is, um, much in line with what we see in lung cancer and, and other things. So getting right to the, the meat of this. So it was, and, and Ruby was, uh, you know, both these trials are similar but different, and we can talk about some of those key differences. But again, this is patients, first-line therapy, essentially. They may have had prior therapy given adjuvantly and still go on the trial, so it may be the second time they've seen carboplatin paclitaxel. Uh, but these patients had recurrent, mostly measurable disease uh, patients, and then they were stratified based on their, their MSI status, um, prior radiation, and or their disease status. They received distarlamab at 500 milligrams um, 
IVQ three weeks, and they had six cycles of carboplatin paclitaxel, and then they received maintenance to starlimab or placebo, as shown there in the Q6 week strategy. Primary endpoints, uh, PFS and OS, and the secondary endpoints uh, included Bicker, which I just uh, presented about an hour ago at the ASCO, and uh, the, the over, overall uh, response rate, DOR safety and pros. Uh, and I won't go through that on every study, but we'll talk a little bit about these things. And really, you can see it even from the back of the room. We don't, we don't even need a huge graph here to note that in that DMMR population, staggering differences. And also looking at the shape of that curve, this is progression-free survival with the Starlimab plus chemotherapy. And, uh, and there's two parts of Ruby. That's why part one did not include the PARP inhibitor of niraparib. Part two, we don't have those data yet, but the, the trials accrued. But you see this uh, hazard ratio of 0.28, just uh, big differences in those curves. The, the uh, evaluation also was the overall population, which includes those proficient patients, and you see the hazard ratio of 0.64 in this group. At 24 months, 61% of the patients were still without progression, and you see how flat that curve is. Those patients were starting to feel like they're cured. And we don't use that cure word for a few years yet, but it's really been uh, quite staggering, the differences seen here. Um, and then <clears throat> uh, we have some uh, uh, overall uh, benefit as well. Overall survival showed a difference here um, with this hazard ratio of 0.64 in the overall uh, patient population. This is not yet mature, but had a, a p-value that was highly um, impressive, so we don't necessarily think there'll be a difference there. The 24-month OS in the DMMR group was 83 versus 58%. That hazard ratio was 0.3, so just really showing us the, the benefit. The 24-month OS in the PMMR group was 67% versus 55. Again, hazard ratio 0.73. If we had that sitting by itself, everyone would say, this is phenomenal, but when it, you put it next to the DMMR population, people are scratching their head, well, is that good enough? I would say 0.73 is pretty impressive. Um, and again, the overall population, that hazard ratio of 0.64. And when we look at uh, some of the presentations that just happened in the last hour and a half, uh, we presented the uh, Bicker analysis. So again, our uh, registrative authorities, and they want to make sure we're telling the truth when we, uh, as investigators, decide whether somebody's progressing or not, uh, really showed good concordance. And the, again, the hazard ratio stayed basically the same. Uh, has ratio 0.29 and overall uh, 0.66 in the, in the progression-free survival. These benefits were seen uh, consistently. When we look at the quality of life, uh, again, this was a very well done prospective trial, uh, good sensitive instruments for detecting quality of life. There was a diminution in the quality of life during the chemo period, uh, but really, the, as we expect, uh, we put patients on chemotherapy, but really the patients tolerated this well and uh, no differences between the two arms. So the addition of the immunotherapy did not diminish quality of life and in fact uh, may have improved it. Looking uh, other frontline approaches, as I mentioned, there was a second trial also in the New England Journal on the same day, which was GY018, or the, uh, run through our NCI mechanism, so through the NRG. And this was uh, a very similar style trial, although uh, powered differently. It was powered as really two separate cohorts of patients the DMMR patients were separated from the PMMR patients and, and powered separately, leading to an 810 patient trial uh, randomized uh, to pembrolizumab versus placebo. 
They could get six to 10 cycles of carboplatin paclitaxel followed by maintenance pembrolizumab for a shorter period. And I didn't point that out as much. It was three years of maintenance with uh, distarlamab, and this is uh, 14 cycles with uh, pembrolizumab maintenance. And we'll be showing you these uh, uh, data as well. So again, two separate cohorts. The DMMR cohort uh, showed that hazard ratio of 0.3. So again, striking differences between the two arms and also maintained within the PMMR cohort, hazard ratio of 0.54. Now, a lot of people make a lot of this, well, what's the differences between this trial? Why is the PMMR doing better, quote unquote, on uh, this study versus the uh, Ruby study? And we don't know yet. Is it, is it better or is it the 018 study was not very mature? This was reported probably the very day that it could be. Um, it needs some maturity to see how these cohorts are going to do over time. Um, but nonetheless, we see still very impressive results across the board here in both the deficient and the proficient tumors. What about the other studies? This, again, had a press release um, stating some positivity. We don't know the data yet, but uh, positive high-level results were reported with clinically meaning, meaningful improvements in progression-free survival. Very similar, although this is a three-arm trial, Carboplatin paclitaxel with uh, Dervalumab uh, versus uh, the addition of Alaparib. So three-arm study investigating these two new interventions of immune checkpoint inhibitor and, and a PARP inhibitor with Alaparib, and then the combination of those. And we do have some good preclinical data that uh, this should be something important in endometrial cancer, and we're hoping it gets accepted to ESMO, and we'll see how that, uh, uh, this uh, data uh, comes out. But, uh, the more interventions, and hopefully, especially in that PMMR population, which as Dr. O'Malley mentioned, is the population that represents a lot of our, our uh, patients with the worst disparity. Our black patients tend to be in that proficient mismatch repair population. So what about safety? The safety profile in either the Starlimab or the Pembrolizumab trial uh, was really uh, consistent with what we see with the individual components. It's about 10% higher across the board when you add a checkpoint inhibitor to carboplatin paclitaxel. They're thankfully somewhat non-overlapping. Common AEs in both regimens, nausea, fatigue, certainly we see thyroid problems, et cetera, as we do with other immune agents that are quite easy to manage. Similar frequencies of grade three and four AEs were identified in both the DMMR and PMMR cohorts uh, in the pembrolizumab trial uh, with the GY018. So other efforts, what else is going on out there? And uh, uh, this is a, a very nice summary of uh, three trials. And uh, the first two are trying to get rid of chemotherapy for our DMMR population. So Keynote C93 is uh, an entire DMMR population, pembrolizumab alone versus chemotherapy with carboplatin paclitaxel, and then Dominica, very similar uh, design uh, with distarlamab versus chemotherapy. And uh, it will be some time. And when these results report, we'll have to say, well, what about chemo plus pembro? Is that actually better? And uh, uh, so there'll be plenty of room for another debate some night when we talk about how to interpret those trial results with the recent publications of 018 and Ruby. LIPA 001, as many of you know, uh, also stands to replace chemotherapy in the frontline setting. Lamatinib pembrolizumab, we know, and we're gonna be hearing more about it, very active in second and third line uh, in the proficient mismatch repair population. Lamatinib's a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor with uh, VEGF being one of the main features there. Again, enrollment's complete on that study. 
I would think quarter one, we'll see something on uh, LEAP-01. So our immune-related adverse events, and I know, uh, as you talked about our introduction, we're, adverse events are something that we all are concerned of. And any itis is certainly part of our checkpoint inhibitors. And uh, dermatologic with rash and pruritus, which is fairly easily managed with our topical steroids and antihistamines. GI issues, these can be troubling, both obviously from the patient and the practitioner. How much should I worry about this in these patients? Um, when do I institute steroids? Uh, and really that conversation with the patient, you gotta tell me when you're having diarrhea because we need to be acting here. The endocrine uh, disorders, uh, mostly hypothyroidism, but it can be more extensive than that. Often we're, um, as, even as gynecologists, we're prescribing uh, thyroid medications quite regularly now. So, and then our pneumonitis, which is our most uh, scary of the side effects, uh, hepatitis and pneumonitis. Um, certainly these patients need uh, to be acted on quickly and, and uh, work with uh, hard dose steroids. Now, uh, ASCO's done a great job in providing us guidance in how to be managing these patients. And really with early intervention, uh, we feel the safety profile here is, is certainly maintained. So what about the timing of these immune-related adverse events? And, and they really can occur any time, but we have a, a bit of a sense from uh, the compilation of data. Um, and this was a publication from 2019. That skin rash tends to happen early. That colitis usually peaks around the second cycle. And then uh, later toxicities with the liver toxicity. And then endocrinopathies really can happen even uh, remotely. Um, starting to see a little more nephritis. I think that that is something that happens late in the game, as is shown here. And this uh, peaked at, uh, at 30 weeks of treatment and, and um, something we certainly watch for and can manage uh, uh, usually fairly easily with the, the interventions. Um, obviously, communication with patients is critical, following up on our laboratory studies, uh, what to watch for. And patient education materials are so crucial for us and, and, and our uh, uh, nursing team to help us manage these toxicities. What about HER2? And again, uh, David mentioned HER2 uh, targeting an endometrial cancer. And this was uh, a, a passion project by Dr. Amanda Fader and, uh, and group. Uh, went out and did an investigator-initiated trial, randomized phase two, looking at trastuzumab. We had previously looked at trastuzumab alone in endometrial cancer and saw no responses. Um, but there was obviously uh, a thought that combining it with chemotherapy could make a difference. This is the overall survival showing a hazard ratio of 0.58 in the population. That again, using breast criteria, were positive uh, two to three plus, uh, and then those intermediates were uh, fish positive. We've implemented another study to further confirm these randomized phase two data, and that's GYO26. It's an international study with trastuzumab or trastuzumab pertuzumab delivered in the sub-Q fashion. Uh, for patients with HER2 positive endometrial, mostly serous cancer, carcinosarcoma, but anything P53 abnormal can go on this trial. Uh, this trial is just starting to accrue at this point, and many people ask, well, what, what does Ruby and 018 do to this? And we're investigating those HER2 positive patients on those studies to see whether they should be pulled out and targeted with uh, HER2 agents. So let's go to the patient case here. So Laura, uh, accountant, postmenopausal by about five years, enjoys re reading and traveling, came in with postmenopausal bleeding, very typical, very typical. Her biopsy shows a grade three endometrioid cancer. Um, because she's a grade three, we got a CAT scan before. We don't do that for all our, our cancers, but for our higher risk ones. And she had some enlarged uh, lymph nodes. 
She has some comorbidities very commonly we see with our endometrial cancer patients. And she underwent a, a TLH stands for total laparoscopic hiss, removal of tubes and ovaries, BSO, and they're able to remove all visible disease, but she's found to have a metastatic uh, implant uh, in her uh, peritoneum. So, and I want to hear from you, not just on this patient, but in general, tell me what you're doing. And, and we're getting questions come in. Should we be doing next generation? Should we just do a hotspot poly? Tell me what you're doing and tell me what you think you ultimately we should be doing on molecular testing. Absolutely, Davis. Thank you for the question. So let me tell you something. Uh, one year ago, we published the ESMO guideline how patients with endometrial cancer should be diagnosed in terms of pathology or molecular classification. At that stage, most of the physicians don't perform any kind of molecular test. Now, what can I say, you know, due to the dissemination, the education that we have carrying out, I mean, most of the physicians order to the pathology the following, mandatory, there is no doubt, Mishmar repair status. Mishmar repair status followed by P53 ERPR status. Ideally, in academic center, starting with poly. So what we do in Maxi is poly, next generation sequencing, immunohistochemistry for Mishmar repair status, P53 and hormonal receptor status. Matt, what do you, what, Matt, what do you, is that what you guys are doing? I, you know, yeah, again. I, I think, you know, honestly, your slide really summed up what we've been doing now for a few years. When we, you know, we started mismatch repair testing over 20 years ago. That was screening for Lynch syndrome. We didn't have any other predictive myobarkers, but we tried to identify those small percentage of families that had Lynch syndrome. So we were very uh, apt at screening with IHC early on. And I think even when we were fellows 20 years ago, we, we knew P53 was bad. We just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, so yes, we've, we've really implemented that and, and definitely would think this patient on her endometrial biopsy, I would send that off for testing. It may not change anything. She's stage 4B, but at least gives us markers, allows us to start thinking about clinical trials and driving this as a molecular-based care for this patient. Yeah, if she's poly, we're not, I mean, I'm not there to say, oh, she's poly and she's stage 4, I'm going to omit therapy for her, de-escalate, right? So in an early-stage disease, that could impact, but not in this particular patient. Absolutely. Let me tell you something, if I may. So I think now in endometrial are almost at the same level in terms of ovarian cancer and molecular characterization. So I don't think now we can say, patient, you have an endometrial cancer. What is this? It's as I called you, you are David. David, what else? So I mean, we need to start explaining our patient that they have an endometrial cancer with these following molecular features. And according to these molecular features, you will be candidate to one therapy or to other. Well, that's a great point. We need to change the way we talk about them. That's Absolutely. why I, 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 you know, I changed those sli that slide and we need to be more consistent in our messaging. So Matt, this comes to a question that came in. Are you checking copy number? Outside of academic approaches, you know, what does that mean? Are you checking that? And should we even really be talking about copy number low, high? No, we really, we don't. I mean, you, we, you can, and you know, the uh, MSK impact does give them copy numbers. So there are institutions that do it, but for the most part, we can use P53 as the surrogate. So P53 aberrant tumors really put you into the copy number high group and that group that doesn't test positive for mismatch repair or P53, they fall into that NSMP group. So it's really not necessary to, to figure out copy number, but that is rather academic. Yeah. 
So Anna, we had a question come in and really getting to a question about this discrepancy in care in the United States. And they said in Spain, you should have equal access, equal access with more of a socialized type of a healthcare system. Do you see differences in nationalities, in races, in Spain when you have access to healthcare? Is this a problem just for the US? I mean, uh, thank you for the question, but it's quite difficult to identify in Spain this kind of disparity. I could say that 80% of the population have access to the health system regardless of origin, regardless of ethnicity, and regardless of social status. So I mean, all patients have access to all this kind of the molecular uh, tests and all the therapy that we consider that is the best for that. So now I could say that due to the, I mean, more diversity in the population that we are having in our country, we are collecting if we will be able to identify some disparity, but I cannot say right now that we see these differences. So Matt, is it is it the determinants of health? Is it access? Is it or is it molecular? Is it all the above? I mean, I know you've done a lot of work from the molecular yeah. standpoint. What what? Tell us with regards to some disparity, dispar the differences we see in our outcomes. Easy right. for me to say. And it, it clearly it's a, a component of all all the above. Delay in diagnosis certainly, access to care certainly. How much those are a component is really interesting. When we look at our military population, which again all have health care. Uh, maybe they're not getting equal access in the healthcare, but at least they have it and it's uh, uh, available. There's still a worse outcome for endometrial cancer among, the black pa among black patients. And similarly, on clinical trials, we just did this large trial looking at metformin, GOG-286B. The black patients getting the exact same therapies did half as well. I mean, it, it's, it's staggering, and we do have a large grant through the NCI, which one of your partners, Casey Cosgrove, is leading, uh, looking at these molecular characteristics that are really leading to these disparate outcomes. And within that trial, we have uh, mounds of, of uh, demographic data and exposure data, uh, you know, zip code, all these things that we can see. Is it something environmental? What's going on uh, for this big disparity to still exist? And what's some of the best ways to overcome some of our implicit bias? Clinical trials. We know that we have access to, to, from a standpoint of getting access to clinical trials is difficult, but being patients, being uh, all patients being offered and encouraged to participate in clinical trials, so important. So Laura still enjoys reading. Let's go down there. IHC revealed deficient uh, DMMR, okay? Loss of expression, ML, MLH1 and PMS2. Uh, She's feeling a little overwhelmed. Uh, she's worried about continuing work. Uh, she's worried about potential side effects. Matt, what, what, are, you, what are you gonna do? What, what are you gonna talk to her about? Well, I think she needs to know. I mean, you show the data, stage 4B, less than 10% are alive in five years. What, what we used to do. I think we need to say, you know, there's new hope for her. It allows her to continue to travel and do the things she likes to do, but it will require therapy. So I think that you know, we need to think about and really talk to her carefully about moving ahead with therapy. It is, it is quite striking. Some patients, it takes some time to let this set in, to really understand the impact. A lot of patients come in and say, there's no way I would ever take chemotherapy. And uh, uh, really, it takes a lot of patient education sometimes. And, and we take that for granted. And what would you offer? What would, what would you tell her she needed uh, in, in this, this scenario? Uh, so, I mean, yeah, go ahead. 
Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I think it's very important to explain this particular patient what they can get if they receive only chemotherapy. What is the median PFS and the median overall survival that she can expect for the, you know, the current standard first line based on paclitaxel carboplatin? And when you explain, when you add IO to chemotherapy, you know, the risk of recurring is reduced in at least 70%, 7-0. I mean, they must understand, I mean, that there's no option just to get this gate of benefit. And there's another point, so when you see at the patient, I mean, you need to receive therapy for three years, you need to receive therapy for two years, according to the Rubio, the 018, you need to explain that after chemo, I mean, they will receive the therapy every six weeks. I mean, there's no reason to cancel any travel, any family visit. I mean, they can manage the schedule with one every six weeks, sorry. One and a half months is nothing. Yeah. Well, but we do have some challenges. So with regards to, to, this, uh, to Laura, we recommend carboplatin paclitaxel. We're not going to get into the shortages quite yet. If we have some time, we'll get into that in the U.S. For our European colleagues, we're, we're facing really maybe disastrous shortages of carboplatin, cisplatin. But so we recommend carboplatin plus IO, distarlamab uh, versus pembrolizumab. Okay, one, one of them, without debate. And, and Matt, you mentioned this, and I, I wanted uh, one of our colleagues on the stage to talk about curative intent. It is time for us to start to talk about the chance that we're going to cure you with your stage 4B disease, which I never would have talked about in the past. What is the difference between the outcomes and beyond those three years? It's really at two years they start to flatten. I mean, yes. in those two trials, what's the, what's, I mean, yes, a little They're uncomfortable, a little uncomfortable <laughs> to cure, right? Yeah, I, but no, what's but, the reality? But we see it in our practice. Now where these patients are out three, and, and again, some of those are on the single agent trials with effective mismatch repair. They're out four or five years. Do I stop my checkpoint inhibitor because they, they're holding on to it like I have no side effects, I'm doing great, and I look like I'm cured. You know, when we talk about that, uh, when to stop. And, you know, the nice thing about these upfront trials, they actually had an endpoint. A lot of our earlier trials didn't. And so, you know, we usually think about a year or two after complete response, but yes, we're using that cure word a lot in the clinic. And I think we need to look at the chance less than 10% cure, which is great steam of chemotherapy, maybe as much as 30, 40%, you know? I mean, that's, that's what the numbers we're looking at. So, all right, a little harder. <laughs> what do you think? She's PMMR, <laughs> she's PMMR, who wants to start? Who's going to take it? Go ahead. All okay. right. I want to hear. She's PMR. She's not DMMR. That's, that's drop the mic. That's drop the mic, right? Everybody gets a, a pd one inhibitor, okay? okay? Now she's PMMR. I mean, she's PMMR, and there's no doubt when you look at the Ruby trial, you look at the 018, that the benefit that the patients get is less than DMMR. I mean, no one is going to discuss this. But at the end of the day, when you add IO, it's superior to a standard of care, paclitaxel carboplatin. Why not are you going to offer a better therapy for our patients? So a few years ago, we have nothing, just paclitaxel carboplatin. Now we have a therapeutic approach that is able to raise the bar 
Why not? It's true that we would like to have more granularity in the PMMR. It's true that we wanted to weigh at the mature overall survival, yeah. But in the way, I mean, in the meanwhile, we can miss a lot of patients. We can lose patients. So I will offer for sure. Absolutely. All right, Maddie. And again, I agree. I think. Well, you know, ah, oh, oh, you don't get off that easy. No, no, no. Oh, wait a second. So I check her two new status. I check on her two new status, and she's P53 mutated. I think I, I'm just adding this. I'm making it up as I go. All right, proficient. Okay, how do you have that conversation? What 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 data? I mean, we have GY18 shows. I mean, again, we're not we're not that excited about hazard ratios of 0.5. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, this would have been the PMMR would have been dropped to Mike not that long ago, right? right? So, exactly. Yeah, I think. So she's HER2 positive, P53 mutated. Is that what you're telling me? And she's proficient. And, and proficient population. So, you know, we have a trial for her if she's interested. Uh, Joy. <laughs> Joy you know, the easiest way to respond. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, that's a tough one. I mean, I think um, the way I would say, you know, if off trial presenting things head to head, I would probably favor checkpoint. And, and the reason for that is the ADCs that we have in our back pocket now that for her too are showing phenomenal responses. And it may be better than what we have with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. I don't know that yet. Uh, it's a, it's a, this is a delicate discussion when you think about trastuzumab for the HER2 positive patient. And again, she would not have been eligible for the other trial because she wasn't serious. So it's still a little bit of this unknown. Yeah. Now she probably, we could probably get her on the new trial, but uh, I think ADCs uh, have come a long ways and, and it may be better than just thinking about trastuzumab by itself. And we are going to new world with ADCs on this particular patient. So I'm pulling out Monica Levine, my senior fellow. We're pulling out the curves, <laughs> it's completely invalid. But here's me with my computer, my Mac, and line up the curves from the, from the trastuzumab <laughs> and GY18. <laughs> I, I honestly can say, I don't know what I would, yeah, I, I have this conversation, and I also would favor IO in this circumstance because you have a definitive, two definitive phase three trials versus a smaller, non-blinded, no bicker phase two. Plus, but, if you look in that serous yeah. group in 018, when you, the force plot, that 95% confidence interval is all on the, the side favoring checkpoint. Um, again, we didn't show that to you, but um, I, I think there's enough reason to say checkpoint now. And again, I'm asking these questions to have a dialogue, you know, and, and, and I, there, we truly don't have the answers to some of this. This is not just for, inter, you know, we're not just up here from an entertainment standpoint. These are the questions Although that the patient- Although you're very entertaining. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> but when a patient's sitting in front of you and she is saying, Doc, what are you recommending? Somebody asked a question, should we refer all patients with uterine cancer to a, a, a large academic referral centers before initiating therapy? I don't believe you need to send all your patients to, to the larger centers, but I think there are patients like this one, a stage four, getting access to clinical trials, getting access to these very difficult discussions, which we don't know the answers to, and this is what we do every day. This patient should be seen at a large referral center, at least in consult, and then partnering with our community medical oncologist for these treatments, but very, very important. So high-grade tumors, carcinosarcoma, P53 mutated, making sure the molecular testing is done. Maybe if it's not being done in those community, having a consult at the larger center with regards to molecular testing and having those discussions. Very, very important. All right, <laughs> Anna, what do we got? 
<laughs> okay, now you know. I'm I'm feel that I have you know the poorer part because you know we have showed this marvelous data in first line. So I'm moving to the recurrence. So, what do we know? We know that I mean, until now I would say still in Europe the standard of care is paclitaxel carboplatin. In Europe, in another part of the world, I mean, although we would like to treat our patient with IO, we cannot. It's not still approved. It's on the way. So. A standard of care, paclitaxel carboplatin. What happened with this patient? Happened that when this patient progressed, when they failed to platinum therapy, they are not a standard of care, or there, are, there was not a standard of care. I think we should speak in pass right now. So then in this scenario, immunotherapy emerged as a really game changer. I mean, David has already explained very well the implication of molecular classification. How can we split the patient in those whose tumor harbor in Mishmar repair deficiency and in those who are Mishmar repair deficiency? We also know that there several checkpoints in development, but today the only two checkpoint inhibitors that have been approved for the treatment of recurrent of advanced endometrial cancer after failure to platinum is pembrolizumab and dostarlimab. Why we have these new drugs approved in the endometrial cancer field? Let us start with, with pembrolizumab. As you know, following the in initial, I mean, efficacy signal that we saw in phase one. I mean, the Kino 158 trial was developed. It was a multi-cohort clinical trial, and in the specific cohort for endometrial cancer, we enrolled patients with, with endometrial cancer, DMMR of MSI high. All patients must have received previous line of therapy based on platinum, and all patients must have measurable disease. Why? Because the primary endpoint was overall response rate. So we must determine the tumor size shrink when we treat this patient with pembrolizumab. Another important point, you know, all patients receive a flat dose of pembrolizumab, 200 milligram every three weeks IV. And then what about the duration of therapy? The duration of therapy was up to 35 cycles of progression of prohibited toxicity, whichever occurred first. So we have learned from 158. We have learned that pembrolizumab provides a really compelling anti-tumor activity with an overall response rate of 50%. 60% complete response and 34% partial response. And I always say the same. No, it's not only the overall response rate, but the duration of response. When you look at the median duration of response for those patients who respond well, 63 months, it means around five years, around five years. This is really amazing for patients who have progressed after platinum therapy. So this trial led to approval of the pembrolizumab, although they have diagnostic approval as well. What about <laughs> dostarlimab? I mean, the development of dostarlimab started in the Garnet trial. Garnet trial was born as a phase one trial to determine the recommended phase two doses. When we 
establish this phase two dose, then we have different multiple cohort where we wanted to see the really activity of the starlimab. One of these cohort was called A1, and then we enrolled their patients with the MMR, MSI high. What you need to know is that the, the status, the status of mismatch repair was locally determined, and then we enrolled patients who have received up to two lines of therapy. And it's something that I would like to stress. You know, we could enroll patients who have received paclitaxel carboplatin as adjuvant therapy for stage 3C2. So, patient received the schedule of the Starlima that it was 500 milligram every three weeks for the first four cycle, and later on, 1,000 milligram every six weeks. I mean, this is a really convenient schedule. And I can say, you know, the Dostarlima was the first anti-PD-1 that started with this schedule. So what we learned from the Garnet trial and Dostarlima? Okay, so the, firstly, I would like to point out that the Garnet trial, the CORE A1, is the largest series treating DMMR, endometrial cancer with single agent anti-PD-1 therapy, 143 patients. We show a really compelling overall response rate, 45%, 16% complete response, 29% partial response. And once again, I go back to the duration of response. The median follow-up for the Garnet trial is 27 months, as you can see here. 83% of the patients who respond, they are still in response at the time of cutoff. So, then, <laughs> what happened? I mean, we have shown, I mean, we're very proud of this data, David O'Malley, you know, 158, or, I mean, you know, Garnet trial, but we are, I mean, we are talking about the best population, the MMR. So, we haven't seen the data from the PMMR. What happened with PMMR, a single agent IO, that the response are really poor, they are not really compelling. So, we need to find some way to improve the monotherapy activity. As Matt showed, you know, chemotherapy and IO has a synergistic effect. And then we learn from the Keynote 146, when we add an anti-angiogenic to IO, we can obtain this synergistic effect and then we increase the activity of IO monotherapy. This was the first signal of activity, phase two trial, and then according as a result of this, uh, phase two, you know, the phase three trial was launched. The phase three trial is Keynote 775. In this trial, you know, we enroll patients with advanced metastatic recurring endometrial cancer. Patients may have received paclitaxel carboplatin as adjuvant therapy, but they have relapsed less than 12 months, and all patients must have received measurable disease. Important, there's a stratification factor, mismatch repair status, DMMR or PMMR. And among PMMR, we had an additional stratification factor, region, echo, and history of radiation therapy. And then the patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to a standard of care, chemotherapy, either doxorubicin or weekly paclitaxel, an experimental arm. Lembatinib, Lemba, 20 milligrams, of pembrolizumab, flat dose, 200 milligrams. Primary endpoint, co-primary endpoint, PFS by Bicar and overall survival. And secondary endpoint, overall response rate. So, 
The trial was positive. The trial met its primary endpoint. The combination of Pembrolemba increased, prolonged the median PFS in the PMMR and in all CAMAR population. And this is the final analysis, the first analysis we are publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine. And recently, has, this data has been published with an additional 16 months of follow-up. And you can see the hazard ratio was 0.6 for the PMMR population and 0.56 for all CAMAR. The median PFS was 6.7 months for the Lemba Pembro compared to 3.8 in the PMMR population. What about the overall survival? The trial was also positive according to this primary endpoint. Pembro Lemba significantly and clinically significant prolong the overall survival for our patients. In the PMMR, the Lemba Pembro Median PFA, I mean, sorry, overall survival 18 months, 12 months, I mean, one year for chemotherapy. And in all CAMAR, exactly the same. The hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.65, median overall survival 18 months for the Lemba Pembro, and 12 months for chemotherapy. So there's no doubt that the combination is superior to chemotherapy. What about the overall response rate. Remember that this is a secondary endpoint. When you look at the Lemba Pembro in the PMMR, the overall response rate was 32%, just 50% in chemotherapy. In all CAMAR, 33% for the combination, 50% for chemotherapy. And then I'm sure that you are asking yourself, what about the DMMR population? The first thing that you need to take into account, that this is an exploratory analysis. In the 775, the population DMMR was capped per protocol. So just it's only a, a, low, a low percentage of the population. Nevertheless, Lemba Pembro was superior in terms of PFS and overall survival. And when we look at the overall response, interestingly, the overall response was 40%. Exactly, I will not say exactly because this is a comp this trial, sorry, cross-trial comparison. But I mean, it's very similar what we have seen with Pembrolizumab monotherapy or the Starlimab monotherapy. So. Then, what about safety? So, MAD has explained very well, you know, the safety profile for I.O. But when we come with the combination, then we are having two different agents, LEMBA with its specific profile and PEMBRO with a specific profile. So, and let me tell you something, you know, at the beginning of the use of this combination, people were very concerned about the safety. They didn't know really how to manage the uh, side effect. Now we can say that a while, you know, using PEMBRO LEMBA, you know, all the physicians, all the nurses, and most important, all the patients are aware of this adverse event. And when you are aware of adverse event, you can identify early. If you identify early, you can establish the best therapy for this patient. So for example, you know, one of the most common adverse events for the combination is diarrhea or colitis. What is the first recommendation? Stop LEMBA. Why? Because the, the, the half-life is short. And then we'll see what happens. Unfortunately, after stopping LEMBA, the patient still suffers from pembrolizumab. Then you need to start the side effect as immunomediated uh, side effect. But I mean, the, the, the bottom line, the take-home message is learn how to manage the side effect 
and identify early. So for that, you know, all healthcare provider and the patient must be aware of the kind of side effect that they may suffer. And finally, last but not least, I mean, we have shown that we have several options of therapy for our patient after platinum therapy. So we must integrate patients' knowledge and patients' decision on the best therapy for them. Patient must feel confident on the therapy that they are going to receive. This is the reason why we should explain the therapy, we should explain the benefit that they may get for a particular therapy, and then all together, you know, make the decision on a particular patient's therapy. That's all. Fantastic. Well, yeah, it's wonderful. And I, 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 I really, when we look at this from a toxicity management um, we, we really have gotten to become really good friends with our dermatologist and our GI, uh, our rheumatologist. Uh, I, I never thought I'd be doing reviewing so much rheumatology. So let's talk about Maria. Um, retired as being a librarian a few years ago, continues to be an avid uh, hiker, very uh, uh, active with young grandchildren. She undergoes minimally invasive hysterectomy BSO, sentinel lymph node dissection. Finds a grade two endometrial, uh, endometrioid uh, uterine cancer, stage 3C1, so positive pelvic lymph nodes, that regional patient we were talking about earlier that we're doing much better than we used to. She's also proficient. So she was treated before, did not go on clinical trial, was treated before the most recent data, got carbotaxel, did well, then unfortunately at seven months shows up with GI symptoms. CAT scan, shows us suspicion of recurrence. We confirm it with a biopsy, okay? So kind of jump to, you know, what, what would you do on this patient? But from your data, with what we've talked about, pretty straightforward, the proficient patient, Lenpem, right? All right. So now she presents with grade two diarrhea. So go over that a little bit, okay. So she, show, she calls you, she calls the APP, she calls the nurse. And, uh, if, and they say I'm having diarrhea, you know, early on, the nurse in my, in my practice would say, oh, that's not us, call your primary care. Exactly, that's right? the point, that's the point. So, so tell us about how did you educate your nursing team with regards to the importance of this, and then how would you, then go into a little bit, how, how would you manage her, say she's at cycle, uh, between cycle two and three. Yeah, this is a very good point. So I, I remember when we were starting to run the 775, you know, we were not really aware about the side effect. And then, you know, these patients suffer from diarrhea grade two. I mean, they call to the emergency room, oh, okay, tomato diarrhea, I mean, you know, leak, uh, drink some liquid, I will be enough. And then this grade two became a grade right. three. Yeah. Now we know when the patient under this kind of therapy called to the emergency room, called the clinical nurses, the first step is stop lemba. Stop Lemba, you know, drink a lot of liquid and see what happened in 48 hours. If the patient continue with diarrhea despite stopping Lemba, then we start with GI consultation, colonoscopy, and biopsy to determine if there's just a grade two diarrhea led by uh, Lemba or the patient is suffering from immunoreligated um, diarrhea. But I think the key point is, as I mentioned before, 
identify early, not neglecting identification of immunorelated adverse event. So Matt, she gets admitted on a Friday, right? She gets admitted on a Friday. She's starting to get sick on you. She's starting to get sick on you. She's starting to have some vital side stains. She doesn't look good. You can't get a colonoscopy. What, what, what are you doing with that patient? So certainly a stool assessment's a good idea. Um, obviously there's some specific things we can look at, but that patient's probably gonna getting a scan making sure not something else going on, bowel blockage or other things, but pretty quick to institute steroids. I mean, I think there's really little downside, even if you can't get that confirmatory scope of starting steroids for these patients, because they can get, as Anna just mentioned, sick really fast. And uh, um, obviously there's good guidelines within ASCO and other uh, uh, agencies to help us manage these, this toxicity, but certainly not something that should be ignored. So get the C. diff, make sure she's, she, she doesn't have C. diff and then get started on steroids. You know, I think we, 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 you know, once we give that 24 hours, but they're not getting better, even if they continue to get worse in that first 24 hours. And really when we look at this, at the multidisciplinary approach and teaching, teaching our uh, uh, colleagues across the country, we don't have to do this alone. Find some people who you trust in GI, derm, pulmonary, endocrine. And again, I can't believe how much new Synthroid I write for now, right? <laughs> you know, but blood pressures, referring them to their primary care for blood pressure, hypertension of levatinib is not gonna fly. It doesn't get managed, it can get scary. So really when we look at this, we, we put this slide up because those are the most common toxicities and they're most common overlapping because we see the dermatologic with the levatinib, we also see the dermatologic obviously uh, with with our IO therapy. It's the most common by number wise that we see with IO. Many of those are early grade and we're able to manage them with local therapy and don't have to go to systemic steroids. So making sure we have a multidisciplinary approach and that we're going forward. I really want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the previous case uh, before we start talking about clinical trials and, 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 and you're not. So this particular patient receive levatinib pembro, right? But we're getting, you know, should we, in that patient who's proficient, sh what should we be doing in the patient with prior, I'm gonna have Matt start this time. So this patient, let's change a little bit. She was treated on trial, okay? She was treated with an IO, single agent. And she's progressed, instead of seven, four months, seven months, she's progressed 13 months. What are you gonna do with that patient? Yes, yeah, so the 13 month progression patients, um, you know, are, create an opportunity where you start to think about should I reintroduce carboplatin paclitaxel? And uh, here we didn't mention it before, but one of the reasons we also check P53, and it may be an opportunity for us to add in bevacizumab. We have good evidence from uh, one of our randomized phase two trials, uh, GOG 86P that those P53 mutated patients, the ones that specifically benefit from the addition of bevacizumab. So I might think about a carboplatin paclitaxel bevacizumab regimen in somebody that's prior exposed with IO therapy. I'm gonna consider lenvatinib pembrolizumab for the same reasons though, and I know it's IO after IO, but you have this time period, you're saying seven months after they completed their therapy, so uh, certainly something to consider uh, going with LENPEM, even though they were prior IO exposed. We just don't have much data yet. Well, we, we need that data, right? We yeah. need that data with the IO exposed in the levatinib pembro arm. So, so Matt doesn't have much data. He's talking to the patient. He gets treated with LENPEM. 
progresses after four to six months. I'm getting a question here, what's your next line? What's your next line? I mean, what's your third line after IO? Maybe it's really second line if, you, if, if you're not gonna go to LENPEM. I mean, what's our options in endometrial cancer right now? You know, for me, the easier way will be to put the patient at an ABC clinical trial. <laughs> trial yes. <laughs> right there. There's no doubt, you know, ABC clinical trial is the future after IO. When we go back to control arms in the lumbatinib pembrolizumab trial, we have Taxol, we have doxorubicin. Not favorite drugs, but they still have a role to think about retreatment of these single agents. So. And how are Brian Solomon's his favorite? Yeah. Probably not in this particular patient, but you know, again, that's, she is ER positive. I, uh, 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 hormonal, therapy. <laughs> hormonal therapy. Hormonal therapy, right? Hormonal therapy. Clinical trial with hormonal therapy and cyclic inhibitors. But also, that's when the next generation sequencing is making potentially such a difference because we're identifying targets which may be actionable for, for clinical trials and even sometimes off clinical trials in a patient who you don't have a clinical trial for. Now, what are you doing, Matt? I think we have to talk about this, and the reason I'm going to Matt is because it's US-based. I mean, what's, why can't we get carboplatin, cisplatin? Don't ask me why. Don't answer why. I asked. What are we doing when we can't get it? When we can't, what, what, what? This is a real problem. This is a real problem. Methotrexate, carboplatin in the US, not in Europe because of the way our system's set up. I mean, how, how, how are you counseling your, 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 your referring physicians? How are you doing at your own center? Yeah, so we, uh, we just finished up the endometrial guidelines. And I know uh, our uh, SGO, GOG partner, or GOG Foundation uh, came out with a statement for cervical cancer and ovarian cancer about alternate therapies. And that is, uh, will be coming out soon for endometrial cancer. The use of oxaliplatin, I think, is reasonable. We have very limited data in endometrial cancer about replacing our platinum with oxaliplatin, but I think that may be a short-term strategy. We're you know, obviously working with the NCCN to allow those things to happen. Um, the, uh, uh, it's a real problem. And I actually have my first oxaliplatin taxane, pembrolizumab patient uh, starting. Uh, she came from another institution. We were kind of, we have enough to finish some active therapy. So new starts right now, we're going to a non-carboplatin, non cisplatin, and yeah. using the oxaliplatin, which again has its own issues with the neurotoxicity when we add in the taxane. And while I torture these guys with some more questions, if anybody else has a question in the audience, raise your hand. We have some mics we're circulating. If there's anything we didn't address. So levatinib, you started on levatinib pembro. I don't know which case that is, but levatinib pembro <laughs> back there. I just keep making them up, right? Levatinib pembro, horrible hypertension. She gets pressed. Yeah. You have to stop the levatinib in a proficient patient. Stop levatinib because of severe toxicity. Are you continuing the Pembro? Are you continuing the IO therapy after you've, after you've stopped levatinib? I mean, this is a very good point. So um, I guess, because I mean, I didn't face this case in my daily practice, we, we have been able to manage the hypertension. I think I, we should continue Pembro with a closely follow-up. I mean, you know, I will perform CT scan every six weeks, and finally, you know, eventually we identify a progression, then we will modify the therapy. But according to the protocol, I mean, you can stop Lemba and continue uh, Pembro, and it's what we are doing in the daily practice. 
That's what we do too, Matt. That's similar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of patients too that the fatigue gets caught up with them. They need drug holidays, breaks, and you know, using this dual compound, th uh, you know, therapy. There's an art to it, right? It's not you know, not necessarily what was done in the protocol, especially as you get out more than a year. A lot of these patients need breaks. They need uh, time off therapy. Uh, usually, continuing the checkpoint inhibitor and giving a break from the lamotinib. Uh, the uh, works quite well for these patients, and they go back on and uh, treat. And a lot of patients that they want to go down, they all they get all the way down to four milligrams for a bit, and the disease starts to come back. And then they go back on their 12 or 14 for a while and, and cycle it. And it's amazing you still you see that disease control happen for quite some time. So yeah. my lowest dose of uh, levatinib right now is four milligrams every other day, and uh, she continues to have disease stabilization. Actually, has a CR with her, her pelvic tumor. So. All right, Matt, I, I love your answer to this. Um, what, what are you starting your dose on, on, on Levatinib Pembro? I, I follow what you taught me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still write for 18 to give them the, the dosing strategies to 10s and 2.4s, but you know, I certainly talked to them about the trial being 20, and I think that uh, dose intensity may matter. It is hard to talk to patients about escalating when you start at something lower. Very few people are willing to escalate just from the, yeah. the fatigue factor, um, but we do. We try. It's uh, you know if you look across our patient populations, you know the, most of them end up on 14. Um, so I think it's. I mean, I would like to add the same. You know, I I, I strongly recommend starting at the full dose. I mean, what we should do is follow closely the patient. If the patient, you know, develop a prohibitive toxicity, then we manage, but we have data from the phase two that it seems that this patient who responds, 68% of the patients who respond, they have received the full dose of lemba. So, I mean, and it seems, you know, that, 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 that the receptor are fully covered when you start the highest dose. I mean, the recommended dose. So, I mean, start with the higher dose and follow the patient closely to identify any side effect that preclude from continuing with the highest dose. And my academic, I agree 100%. From the pragmatic aspect, when we start at 18, they have 10s and 2.4s, so it's so much easier to dose reduce rather than having the weight go down. Because what happens if they have the 20s, they have the 210s, so while you're waiting for the new 8, uh, 14 per, uh, prescription, they end up getting 10 for that period. So that my reasons for starting at 18 is strictly pragmatic. I'm going to torture these guys with questions the next nine minutes unless somebody in the audience asks a question. <laughs> Please raise your hand. <laughs> you know, I, I would say one of the things that you mentioned while the microscope's coming, or microphone's coming over is about hormonal therapy. How do we include hormonal therapy into our queue? And again, those ER-positive patients uh, really should be on our problem list thinking about, do I think about Everolimus letrozole? Do I think about getting them on a trial with a CD4-6 inhibitor? Um, there's a lot of interest in that space, in that hormonal space. Absolutely. Yes, I have a question for Dr. Ragnin. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about uh, hypermethylation of MLH1 with uh, Kinode 158 uh, showing a detrimental effect and the garnet showing the contrary. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah, thank you, Gonzalo. This is a very good, this is a very good point. So firstly, I think we have, haven't discussed in this, in this forum, so 
all patients who are identified by immunohistochemistry with the DMMR, I mean with the loss of MLH1, MLH2, or PMS2, one of the four proteins, I mean should have a hypermethylation state by PCR by the pathology. So if we identify hypermethylation state, we can say that this is not associated with a Lynch syndrome or like Lynch syndrome. So we have learned, I mean, if there's no hypermethylation, sorry, I will finish, then the patient should have a, a mutation analysis. I mean, the patient should be referred to the genetic counseling. So what have learned so far? I mean, the pembrolizumab data, I mean, they are two small phase two trials, and they show that those patients who have a hypermethylation in MLH1, they respond worse, and the PFS and overall survival are shorter for those. When we look at the Garnet trial, post hoc exploratory analysis, it doesn't seem that it happened. It seems that all patients, regardless of hypermethylation status, respond in the same way. But I would like to say that this is all hypothesis generating. Now Matt will explain much better in the Ruby trial in the 018. I mean, they are going to analyze really this status and determine if there's an impact on the outcome if the patient has a mutation in the mismatch repair protein or they have a happy methylation status. That being said, we are generating more data. There is a very interesting paper from the Memorial Sloan Kettering with a large number of patients treated. And once again, they see that there are differences in terms of prognosis and in terms of response to pembrolizumab if the patients, I mean, the tumor have mutations in the mismatch repair that led to the DMMR of the patient high hypermethylation. The bottom line, all patients must be studied in terms of hypermethylation status or mutation status in the mismatch repair pathway. Thank you, Gonzalo. Yeah. And making sure we get into genetics for those who are not hypermutated, right? I mean, I think that's a really important point to identify. And it's only going to be about 10% of those patients. So, you know, it, we clearly see benefit in those deficient patients. There may be maximum, maybe those numbers who, uh, though that cure word I used, may be th that patient population you're referring to. But I think we continue to see benefit across all our deficient patients. Question here. Yeah. I have three questions. All right. <laughs> there we go. The first, you want have you been to the bar? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get my pen out. What bottle would you? Uh, the first question related with the synchronous ovarian and endometrial cancer. Do you think that we need to change the way in which you we analyze these cases because the, this evidence. The second one is related how we can detect the cold tumors at the beginning of the treatment to avoid using this combined therapy in those cases that are destined to not respond. And the second, and the third one, and maybe for Dr. O'Malley, uh, what about radiotherapy? Because in your slide, never appear the radiotherapy. You put the surgery and then the chemo. But if you are aware of radiotherapies, I say there is what, a role. What type of therapy? Uh, radiotherapy. 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 Oh, radiation. gosh. You put out. Do we still do radiation therapy? Yes, that's my point. <laughs> start with the radiation so therapy issue. I, you know, that's a great question. And we really, uh, so let me start with the, what the, the, the third, and I'm going to turn it over to the hard ones, harder ones for you, right? So radiation therapy, we didn't really talk about uh, local disease. And that really is, we just didn't have time and we only have a couple minutes left. So we actually have the rainbow trial that's in, in Europe and we're really looking at identifying those patients who are gonna benefit from local therapy. 
But clearly with the uh, most recent data, we don't see survival advantage with the addition of radiation in regional disease. Now, I think there are some subsets, and we see in PortJack 3 there may be subsets that are high-risk population that clearly could help people control disease. But from survival, we're not seeing an impact, but there's definitely disease control. So I think the regional, there's some patients in the region that could be still debated, but clearly with 258, we, we're not seeing that. But in the local control of disease, uh, there still is an opportunity there, particularly in recurrence, which we know we had do a good job of controlling disease. So the first, the, the other question Let you had- Let me just add to that, we to please. So for GUG258, we're looking at the molecular subtypes in that, and hopefully that'll shed some light on who should be receiving radiation. And then secondly, for GUG249, which was our uh, brachytherapy plus chemo versus pelvic radiation, similar things there. Hopefully within the next year we'll have that. I know it's taken a long time to get the funding to do that, but to really answer the local therapy question, where does radiation fit? And so let's uh, segue in, I think the first question was the synchronous ovarian uterine. Yeah, and there's some, but Matt, you wanna take that? And yeah, then, so and actually I'm you'll have, see yes, on the new FIGO staging that it actually, those patients do quite well when they're well staged, low grade, there's you know, certain features there, and they're actually gonna be moving them to a stage two. Uh, because of that better outcomes for the synchronous primary population. And whether that's endometriosis-associated cancer in the ovary plus concurrent endometrial cancer is you know, probably the theory there. And, those, and you can, historically, we know those patients do really well. And uh, uh, the third question was... I'm going to talk to you. So how do we identify those cultures? How do we identify... And I think the work that you've done with the Starlimab, the, the work that we, we've all done across all these, uh, uh, these trials, how are we gonna identify those patients who are not going to respond to immune therapy? What's some of the work that's being done? Right now, we continue to do that. Can, can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, in a very short month, it is a very good point. So we, we are about to publish a clinical cancer research when we analyze further molecular uh, feature beyond Mishmar Reaper state. We have already presented in ESMO two years ago. So in summary, you know, you need to put together Mishmar Reaper state, TMB, PDL1. What we have learned is those patients who are PMMR, but they have high tumor mutation burden and CPS greater than one, the overall response rate are equal to DMMR. However, those DMMR who are TMB low, exceeds, this patient exceeds, you know, their response is similar to Mishmar repair proficiency. So it's mean that we cannot stop in Mishmar repair status. We need to go further and to have all the molecular features that may help us to determine what is the best therapy for our patients. And you're going to see the molecular features of 018 and Ruby presented at a meeting soon that hopefully will also shed some light in even when you add chemo to checkpoint, are there still cold tumors where it's not, not needed? And we're really gonna face, can we eliminate chemotherapy? So we've talked about radiation, but can we eliminate chemotherapy? Are there patients, to your point, right? Are there patients who are going to just need iotherapy? And we would love to, if that is the case, we would love to, now we're gonna have to debate that because we have to look at the outcomes because the control arm was just chemotherapy. I want to thank all of you who, who stuck it out. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank, thank you, you, everyone. David. Thank you, David. This activity is certified by PVI. 
Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UDV 860. This educational activity is supported by educational grants from Azine Incorporated, GSK, and Merck and Company Incorporated.